0: They had to drill a hole into my shin bone to get fluids and pain relief. My veins had started to collapse. They'd been so severely burnt, all the nerve endings were gone. My organs and things started to shut down.
1: 242
0: have you responding to one. We're hearing a lady unconscious?
1: us. approach, for Hi, I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast.
0: In hindsight, that was actually probably the worst thing I did because I was wearing a cotton shirt but it had sort of painted on checks. So the paint in the, in the checks caught on fire and, and when I stopped, dropping rail, that sort of pressed the paint onto me.
1: Outback properties are big, real big. And that size can present significant challenges for stock control. Motorbikes, horses and helicopter mustering are common, just to be able to locate and then move cattle across vast expanses of land. And of course, with these properties generally being remote from hospitals, when something goes wrong, there are real issues in getting someone emergency assistance. Michael Tomlinson is an incredible individual and without question is a testament to the strength of the Aussie spirit. What he has endured and survived is outrageous, so I was keen to get you his story. G'day, Michael. You currently live in Toowoomba in Queensland. Have you always lived in this part of the country?
0: Uh, No. So I originally grew up around Charleville and and Augustella and um, went away to boarding school and then from there travelled about the Northern Territory and the top of WA for a while and then moved home and and, um, started helping Dad out.
1: So you've been working in the real estate industry, selling regional property, but this is not the type of work you're expecting to be doing. What did you do before you got involved in real estate?
0: Before I sort of got into the property industry, I guess the catalyst for me getting into the property industry was After I left school, I jackerooed for a couple of years over in in the Kimberleys and the Northern Territory and then tried uni for 12 months, but uh, didn't stick with that. So then uh, after that, I decided I'd better go home and go to work. So I joined the family business, which is, you know, we've got a cattle property or or a couple of cattle properties sort of near Algothella and Charleville and, and then also had bought one up between Normanton and Croydon in the Gulf. So I was doing that and then uh, after a couple of years of being home it made sort of a financial decision to get in and buy our own helicopter because we were sort of doing enough hours for that to make sense so and I was obviously pretty interested in it so I started went and did my helicopter license and got a helicopter and, and was sort of doing that as well.
1: Wow having and flying your own helicopter is unusual. I presume it's something you've really enjoyed?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was good fun. Well, I loved it and would probably fly um, uh, at a minimum probably three days a week, but but possibly four or five in a busy week. So yeah, no, it was really good. I, I loved it.
1: Okay. So if you don't mind, would you tell me about the day of the accident? What were you up to that morning?
0: We'd started fairly early because it was the middle of summer. So we'd, we'd sort of mustered one paddock and, and I'd, I'd had a, actually had a really good morning because there was, uh, I remember there was some cattle that, that had been evading us for a couple of years and we were able to get them out of that paddock and, and put them into a paddock of cultivation country or farming country. So I was sort of thinking we were having a pretty good run for the morning. So I scooted home, went to refuel, Fueled up again uh, I think on the way home I'd said to my brother to to go and check a boar and set some gates because I'd be pretty right once I were on the on the cultivation country on the farming country because it was a bit bit easier to see the cattle and all that sort of stuff he was on a motorbike helping me he scooted off to check a boar I went home grabbed some fuel and, and uh, came back out so I think that would have been about sort of 10, 30, 11 I suppose by the time that that sort of happened um, and then uh and then from there, I sort of, uh, I think it was the first mob of cattle I came onto, we I put some pressure on them, uh, then the basically the helicopter started to cough and splutter a bit, so I checked all my the gauges, they weren't sort of showing engine failure as such, uh, and so I realised pretty quickly it was probably a bit of dodgy fuel, and so sort of nose forward to, to fly out of it but uh, unfortunately the engine sort of cut out um, and, and so I performed a, an emergency landing uh, which, which went pretty well, uh, actually landed all right but uh, there was a little sort of erosion gully uh, in the paddock so I sort of slid down into that which and it sort of wedged the skids and rolled the helicopter over and, and, then, it, uh, and then it blew up. It blew up?
1: When the helicopter started to cough and splutter, did you think, oh my God, this is not going to end well?
0: Uh, Yeah, there would have been for sure. I I think, uh, um, but you sort of, uh, 95% of helicopter training and and what you sort of practice day in, day out is, is emergency procedures. So you... There's definitely a bit of an oh shit moment, but it's mainly just, um, you, you, I guess you, you go into auto auto drive or, or whatever you'd like to call it and, and do your checks and uh, perform an emergency landing. So um, so it was probably, there would have definitely been a, a few butterflies or, or whatever, but yeah, it was probably more just you sort of go into autopilot, I guess, yeah.
1: Okay. So you did this emergency landing and the helicopter had tilted over and exploded. What happened then?
0: So when it rolled, it, it split the fuel tanks and the fuel ignited. So I remember the helicopter landed on its side, it all finished on its side, and then, and then I heard the fuel ignite and, and then it obviously exploded. But um, fortunately, I wasn't knocked out or anything like that. So I was able to, to unclip my, myself uh, out of my seatbelt and was able to jump out jump out of the helicopter and and sort of do a bit of a stop drop and roll but uh, in hindsight that was actually probably the worst thing I did because I I was wearing a cotton shirt but it had sort of painted on checks so the paint in the in the checks caught on fire and and when I stopped dropped and rolled that sort of pressed the paint onto me when I did the stop drop and roll yeah that wasn't wasn't ideal but got up tore my shirt off and I remember I ran across to a, a trough which was probably oh, maybe five or 800 metres away mm. and sort of jumped into that trough but sort of thought it wasn't quite cool enough. So, so I remember jumped out and, and kept on running to what's called a turkey's nest, which is like a, you pump water from a boar into the turkey's nest. It's like an earth tank, I guess. You, you pump water from the boar into the turkey's nest and then pump the water from the turkey's nest to, to the troughs. So, So I jumped into the turkey's nest, which was full, fortunately, and, and sort of waited there, yeah.
1: You talk about this so calmly, but it truly is remarkable. You had burns to more than 60% of your body and you ran almost a kilometre to a cattle trough, found it not cool enough, and then ran even further to a turkey's nest to immerse yourself fully in cool water. So once you're there, you had to wait a fair while for your brother to find you, right?
0: Yeah, so he, from when I crashed to to when he sort of found me was probably somewhere between half an hour and 45 minutes. And I remember he turned up he was obviously, couldn't get me on the radio and, and then was, you know, started looking for me, I guess. And and fortunately, I, uh, by the time he'd come back to where I sort of had crashed, the helicopter had actually completely burnt out. So there wasn't any any smoke or anything like that for him to, to see. Yeah. So he, um, he didn't actually realize I'd crashed and was just lucky that he stopped and turned his motorbike off and I was able to yell out to him and... And he came over to the turkey's nest and found me. And then uh, we sort of uh, had a bit of a chat and uh, sort of said to him that I might need a bit of help.
1: While waiting for your brother to find you, what had you been doing to try to minimise the pain?
0: I think it would have been about half an hour, 45 minutes just going on, you know, and when he left and, and got back to me sort of thing. When you get severely burnt, your nerve endings actually get burnt away. So you, your worst burns don't actually hurt. It's it's your superficial burns that, that actually really hurt. So all of my uh, all of my face and parts of my tummy and stuff that that were probably not burned as badly as as my hands and arms and things they really hurt, so I had to keep duck diving under the water to try and keep my face cool i guess I was obviously in a fair bit of pain but just remember, I knew someone would eventually come and find me because once they couldn't raise me on the radio, that they'd, they'd come looking. So I knew if I just hung in there, eventually someone would turn up.
1: And what was the pain like? Can you describe it? Or was it just like a haze of shock?
0: I mean, obviously, it's like when you burn your finger on a match or whatever, it's it's quite painful. So that was sort of the pain, I guess. But as I said, like a lot of my hands and Arms and things that were probably burnt the worst weren't that painful because because they'd been so severely burnt, all all the nerve endings were gone, so they didn't sort of hurt too badly. But yeah, that was sort of I was pretty happy to be in the in the cool water. I know that much.
1: What was your brother Sam's initial response when he finally found you?
0: I think it was probably pretty upsetting, especially my my hands and arms looked really bad. So because most of the sort of skin and stuff had been burnt off them completely. So they looked really bad. So I, um, I can remember when he came, he was, and sort of realized what had happened. I could see he was a little bit panicked, but I just remember saying to him just to take it easy because he was on a two wheel motorbike. and, And I just remember saying like, take it a bit easy on the way home because, you know, I sort of knew that if he, if he'd had a, an accident, uh, on the way home well I was stuffed as well as him sort of thing so <laughs> so I just remember sort of saying look you know definitely going to need a, a bit of help but yeah take take it easy on the way home because uh don't want to don't want to be stuck here <laughs> from any longer than I have to
1: so what happened then
0: uh so I guess dad must have you know, no one had been able to raise me on the two-way and so he came driving out, I think. And so sort of not long after my brother had left, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, my, my father arrived and, and waited with me. He was pretty upset with the state of my hands and stuff because I had to keep duck diving under the water to cool myself down and I guess he, he would sort of get a bit panicked each time I did that, worried that I, I wouldn't come back up again, I guess. But I still hadn't sort of gone into shock or anything at that stage. So uh, I guess there was still plenty of adrenaline going through me. And so I was able, I was still wide awake then. I think it was probably about another half an hour or maybe 45 minutes till the ambulance arrived. Once they had arrived, that's probably when I, I did start to go into a bit of shock.
1: How did the ambulance team treat you medically once they arrived?
0: So uh, I guess the first job is to try and get some pain relief on board and get some fluids into me. Um, I was really lucky because upon the report going through that it was a helicopter accident, the local Orguthela doctor had actually jumped into the ambulance and ca- came out to the to the scene, so... He did a really good job of, of I guess, stabilising me as much as possible. But the big problem was because I was in such a, I guess, bad state, my veins had started to collapse. So, so whenever they tried to get pain relief or fluids into me, my veins would collapse. Then they transported me into to Orgathella, and luckily for me, I, I guess they'd made the the RF. Yes, aware um, of the accident and had them on standby. Uh, and I think I, I was extremely lucky because there was a full crew in Charleville on that day and I think from the moment they actually got notified that, yes, we are going to need you to the time they got to Orgathella was something like 12 or 15 minutes or something crazy like that, so it was pretty ideal for me. Then the RFDS met us at the Augathella Hospital. They sort of got me in and of I guess, began to, to work towards stabilising me before flying me out. Yeah.
1: As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback and Isuzu have provided D-MAX utes and MUX SUVs pull seven large rfds flight simulators as they engage in school community and field day activities for the royal flying doctor service these simulators are full-size planes minus the wings and the izuzu d-max and mux vehicles are a perfect match for the long distance heavy towing demands of these rfds simulators right across australia so keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state And we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. So the Royal Flying Doctor service was called to take you to a tertiary hospital for the critical care that you were needing. Can you tell me what happened next?
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing with burns is, like, I didn't really know much about them until, I guess, I got burnt myself. But um, you sort of don't realise you're in as bad a shape as you are. So when, I guess, initially, you know, I knew I was in a lot of pain, but I didn't sort of think like I was in a a life-threatening situation, I guess, initially. Then, um, you know, once my veins and things started to collapse, I realised things were, were probably not too good. Actually, the most painful thing of the whole lot, they they had to drill a hole into my shin bone to get fluids into my uh, into into me, fluids and pain relief. So that was probably probably the worst thing of the lot. And then they had to intubate me and I guess basically put me into an induced coma. So um, certainly, I think if the RFDS weren't there, I'll, there's probably a high likelihood I wouldn't be about telling the story. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. Gosh, what a journey. So you were put into an induced coma, stabilised, and flown to Brisbane. How long were you in a coma for?
0: Uh, so I ended up doing 35 days in an induced coma, From sort of talking to Dr. Ellis since the accident. Um, so I think they induced me in Augustella. I can't really remember getting put on the plane, although uh, I think I'm not too sure whether it was because of the drugs I was on or, or what, but I sort of feel like I can remember being lifted into the plane, but I'm... Not hundred percent sure if that was the drugs or, or what was going on there. Yes, yeah, so I remember talking to Doctor Ellis about it. He said there was a few occasions where he thought thought I was, I think my organs and things started to try and shut down, and he was pretty concerned.
1: What was it like coming out of a thirty five day coma?
0: So when when people are brought out of induced comas, they can potentially be a bit aggressive. So I, I don't actually remember the first time they. Apparently, they tried to bring me out on day thirty four and. I'd been a bit, bit aggressive, and then on day thirty-five when they brought me out, I just remember being. Like you, you're obviously on drip and, and you know, you, you're really well hydrated, but you, you don't get any water through your mouth. So, so I remember feeling like my tongue was about four sizes too big. All I, all I wanted was a drink of water, but I wasn't allowed to have one because the doctors were really worried about my swallow reflexes because obviously 35 days of, of not moving, you're pretty weak and uh, there's a high likelihood you won't be able to swallow.
1: How had your body been impacted by being in an induced coma for so long in addition to the burns you'd received?
0: So I think through the period of having the camera, I lost about twenty five kilos. So when I woke up, I couldn't couldn't sort of walk. I remember talking wasn't sort of, I was pretty raspy and and sort of slurring my words and trying to you know get the words out wasn't ideal or wasn't easy you know, I couldn't, had to teach myself to walk again, had to teach myself how to eat again and basically had to learn how to use my hands again. And I remember the f- first sort of week I probably learned how to walk maybe two or three meters sort of thing. But I remember, I think it was about the, probably maybe the second or third night after I'd been moved from intensive care to the burns unit. And I remember sort of having a bit of a, uh, I guess, a teary to myself and then going, oh, well, it's sort of time to to get on with it a bit. And so I think from that sort of second or third day, I just sort of put my head down and and bum up and and got myself going again.
1: Wow. You've you've just been through so much. What was the road to recovery like from there?
0: So I think through the coma period, I had 16 uh, major surgeries and 16 minor surgeries, um, which is predominantly skin graphing. What sort of tends to happen with, with skin graphing and major surgeries like that is you get a lot of scarring. And so as a result, I had to sort of do daily stretching and, and exercises to, to stop my skin sort of tightening up too much to the point where I couldn't move. So, so I was a hell of a lot of physio and 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 obviously because I'd been in a coma for thirty five days, and I was really weak. So I had to had to sort of um, build my strength back up, and and so a lot of gym gym work and and that sort of stuff. So that sort of was basically the majority of of the recovery stuff. But also there's. Uh, Sometimes when you get badly burned, you get, I think it's called heterotopic ossification, where where it's like your joints sort of create, I guess, a bone growth in your joints. So you can't fully, your movement through your joints is not always ideal. So I I had that in in my elbow and in my left elbow and right knee. So in February, when I came back sort of 13 months later, I had to to get an operation to, to cut those bone growth out of my knee and my, my elbow. Um, so that was sort of another sort of six or eight weeks recovery from both of those as well. So, yeah, so it was sort of fairly long and uh, drawn out, but, but yeah, lived to tell the tale, so it was all pretty good. Mm.
1: Have you seen Dr. Charles Ellis since then?
0: Yeah, yeah, I've seen Dr. Ellis a couple of times, which has been really good actually. Actually, the first time I, I bumped into him was was at a charity ball for the, for the RFDS in Charleville, so it was it was quite um, a surreal feeling to sort of meet Dr. Ellis and get his side of the story, I guess, um, and to be able to sort of thank him, I guess, was 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 also was also pretty pretty great.
1: Michael, I have to ask, has this accident changed your perspective on life?
0: I mean, it's definitely changed me to some degree. It's probably given me a bit more compassion and a bit more. Um, Oh, not sympathy, but maybe empathy towards other people, which is, well, I probably needed that <laughs> in a way. Without the RFDS, I, I highly doubt I'd still be here. And I just, I guess, you know, I always sort of say to people, like even people in, in cities and that sort of thing, I, I, you just never know when you'll you'll actually need the RFDS. You could be, you know, doing a trip to LaRue or so, something like that and have a car accident and they're the, they're the guys that pick you up and... You know, save you so they really are I guess a lifeline for the bush
1: Thankfully Michael has recovered however his scarred skin can't take the western Queensland's harsh heat so he moved to Toowoomba and there he married his sweetheart Anna and now he has two beautiful daughters I want to thank Michael for sharing his story and I'm so thankful that his family, the local ambulance the fireys and the RFDS were able to help him on that day I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor Podcast. The Flying Doctor Podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor Podcast. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Izuzu Ute Australia. Izuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Izuzu Ute online.